You're listening to Commute, the podcast. Congratulations, you'll be smarter when you get there. What up? Welcome into Commute, the podcast. I'm Dave. And I'm Jay. And we are about to take you on a deep dive on three topics that we find interesting, and we're betting that you might just find them interesting, too. We can promise you this, you'll be smarter when you get there. On this edition of Commute, coffee is so popular that it is consumed by millions of people all around the world today. So why has it been banned so many times? The hit Netflix show Stranger Things recently released its fourth season and completely dominated the streaming charts. That's not the only result it had, though. It also helped a certain song run on up the hill and back into the Billboard Top 100 nearly 40 years after it was released. This week, we explore when something old becomes new again. Many of us dream of going up into space, but for those select few that get to go, what effect does it have on their bodies and their minds? All of that on this edition of Commute. Let's do it. So Dave, you and I are both coffee drinkers, and we both kind of arrived at drinking coffee maybe a little bit later. I know for me, it was somewhere around like 22 or 23 that I started drinking it. Uh, What did that journey look like for you? How did you become a coffee drinker? Yeah, so I love coffee now. If I could, I would drink coffee all day. Now, I'd be a jittery mess. I'm already pretty high energy, but I, I just love coffee. Black coffee, too. Nothing in it. But my journey to coffee started after college. So through college, didn't drink any coffee, hated coffee. Then I got a job right out of, right out of college, and I was having to get up at like 7 a.m. for this job. And I'm like 22 years old. I just, it was so hard. So I started swinging into Speedway, the gas station, on the way to, to the job, and I would get this super fattening vanilla latte Every single morning. I gained like 20 pounds that year. That thing was probably packing like 700 calories at least. You smell it, you start to gain weight. (laughs) And before we start this segment, it should also be said that a good friend of the show, your dad, Kevin Traub, owns a company called Chocolate Moose Coffee. Yes, chocolatemoosewv.com. So chocolate moose freshly roasted coffee. Yeah, you can order it anywhere in the country. Uh, Check out the website, support uh, Chocolate Moose Coffee. We're we're from West Virginia. You know, we want to support local business and... Um, it's, uh, you know, think of it as supporting us by supporting the chocolate mousse coffee. Dave, we're going to talk about coffee, but we're going to talk about why people have traditionally tried to ban coffee throughout its history. Uh, you know, coffee's been around for a really, really long time, actually thousands of years. Today, humans actually drink around 2 billion cups of coffee every single day. So it's impossible to deny the economic and the cultural impact coffee has had throughout history. But behind our obsession with it is this really long and complicated history. It hasn't always just been openly embraced by everyone. And in fact, it's been banned several times in several different places around the world. So why? What have people had against coffee? So to understand this, we first have to understand how coffee really primarily used to be consumed. You know, today, many of us make coffee in our own homes, but traditionally, when coffee made its way to a new region in the past, it would mostly be consumed in some public place like a coffee house. Coffee wasn't as much something you would drink in the morning to wake up. It was more of a part of like people's social 
social lives. And Dave, besides the coffee house, there really just wasn't a whole lot of places for people to go and to get together and talk. Some social venues like theaters or bathhouses were only reserved for the upper class. There wasn't really a level of connection through the internet that we have today. So a coffee house, really like nothing else at that time, gave a venue where people of lower social classes could gather and just talk. Now to the rich and the powerful, there really is no greater threat than people just getting together and talking about ideas. People getting together to talk politics and society meant that people might be exchanging ideas about maybe problematic rulers or laws that needed to be changed. In fact, in 1511, the leader of Mecca, Kair Beg, outlawed coffee and shut down every coffee house in the city. Now, he claimed to do this because the consumption of a stimulant supposedly violated Muslim drinking laws, but it's a strange coincidence considering, according to historians, this ban came down right after Kair Beg found out that negative sentiments about him were being spread throughout coffee house conversations, according to the New York Times. But it wasn't just in the Middle East. In Europe, coffee didn't quite get a warm reception everywhere either. When coffee shows up in Italy in the 16th century, the fact that it gave people the jitters combined with the fact that it came from the Muslim world led the Catholic Church to ban it and claim that it was satanic. The ban didn't last long, however, after reportedly Pope Clement VIII tried it and loved it. He reportedly said after trying it, quote, This Satan's drink is so delicious, it would be a pity to let the infidels have exclusive use over it. We shall fool Satan by baptizing it and making it a truly Christian beverage. Yeah, that sounds about right. Others who pushed back against the consumption of coffee were those that were hurt by it financially. Before coffee, really the only thing to drink besides water was alcohol, and the advantage of coffee was that it didn't intoxicate you. So, as you would expect, coffee caught on, uh, and as it caught on, alcohol sales dipped drastically. The wine and beer industry pushed back hard against coffee, rallying for bans or trying to discredit it among the public. Prussian Emperor Frederick the Great, probably more than anyone, pushed back against coffee by raising taxes on it and frequently declaring how superior beer was over coffee. They've once even wrote this, which I love, quote, Many battles have been fought and won by soldiers nourished on beer, and the king does not believe that coffee-drinking soldiers can be relied upon to endure hardships in case of another war. But Dave, about all of this, the power of the coffeehouse is undeniable, which is why its regulation has been attempted so much throughout history. Charles II banned coffee in England in 1675 because of the spread of political ideas in coffeehouses, but the ban only lasted a week because of backlash. In 1633, in the Ottoman Empire, Sultan Murad IV banned coffee houses in Istanbul because of the spread of political ideas, actually making drinking coffee punishable by death. Historians will even point out that it's no coincidence that as people began to gather more and more in coffee houses, revolutions spread throughout the 18th century, particularly in America and in France. French King Louis XV was so scared of the radical ideas spreading through coffee houses that he attempted to send spies into coffee houses to spot revolutionaries. It's no surprise that the call to arms to storm Bastille, the official start of the French Revolution, actually took place in a coffee house. Coffee was banned in Sweden from 1746 to 1817, where the king at the time went to great lengths to prove that it was bad for your health. And Dave, within all these examples, there are two common features. One is that coffee is political and has always been political, and this has led people in power to try to control it. 
But second is that it has never worked long term. Coffee has always won out in spite of this pushback. So Dave, next time you have a cup of coffee, consider all of this. You're sort of kind of a rebel in that moment in a way. So I found the uh, nutritional facts here. So we're looking at the 20 ounce French vanilla from Speedway. Okay, so that's what your boy was drinking. So 330 calories in that sucker. But okay. here's the here's the kicker. 50 grams of sugar. 50 grams of sugar? 50 grams of sugar. So I was starting my day <laughs> with a little injection of some sugar cocaine. I'm surprised you have any teeth left in that head. Woo! I brushed my teeth a lot, though. I brushed my, especially back then. I brushed my teeth probably five times a day back then. Yeah. That's too much. You're going to shave off you, all the you enamel. Will, you will scrape the, yeah, your gums are going to be screaming. <laughs> Jay, you and I, and most of the free world, are big fans of the show Stranger Things on Netflix. I know you, like me, really loved this last season. Yeah, yeah, I've really been into it. Um, I have one more episode left, so hopefully there's no spoilers in this section. That's a perfect segue, and before we get going too much into this segment, I want to talk about spoilers. Like, it's amazing to me how people on social media just cannot help tiptoeing around spoiling shows for you the second they watch them. It's like people are allergic to keeping something secret. I think we all need to agree on a fair amount of time that a show needs to have aired before we can openly talk about it. This has been live on Netflix to stream for about five minutes, and people were already putting RIPs on social media to characters that die in the last episode. I mean, I'm going to start the negotiations at one month, okay? So you get one month with a show out before you can spoil it, or you have to go to jail for 12 hours. Uh, a month is a little too much. I think you can dial it back. I don't you know. know. Maybe, I don't know if that's harsh enough. I think maybe like a week for streaming shows, and then maybe like two weeks for movies. But then there's different levels of spoiling. People will be like, don't want to spoil it, but, and they'll put a picture yeah. that you know means something. Yeah, I love the people that always put something like, um, now this isn't a spoiler, but I was just thinking, and then they just say something that's like completely a spoiler. Yeah, get like, out well, of here. thank you get for out that. Of here. 12 <laughs> hours in jail. That's how we stop. <laughs> in gin pop, too. You don't get a cell by yourself or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, you're, like, you're in, there in there with everybody. Murderers, people that just committed <laughs> tax evasion, the whole lot of you. Anyways, <laughs> outside of the latest season being a streaming giant for Netflix, setting a record with over 7 billion minutes streamed in its first week alone, which was expected coming off of the success of the past seasons of Stranger Things. The show also did something else a little more unexpected. It revived a nearly 40-year-old song to levels of success it had never seen, and perhaps is the latest indicator of music charts as we know them becoming extinct. Jay, the song I am referring to is the 1985 hit Running Up That Hill, Running Up That Hill, by Kate Bush. Even though Bush, who has had a nice career, has always been a bit of an anti-star, the song was a hit by many standards when it was released, topping out at number 30 on the Billboard Top 100 chart in 1985. The song has appeared through the years and has been used in various ways on TV shows or movies, including playing a pretty prominent role in the 2012 Summer Olympics. But it's always sunk back to a certain level of, we'll just say, obscurity. Until now. The most recent season of Stranger Things dropped back in May of 2022, and the song's prominent placement in a key episode gave it a unique new lease on life. 
Jay, the song quickly became a top 10 hit in the U.S., the first in Bush's nearly 50-year career, as well as the number one overall song in the U.K. This is all nearly 40 years after its release. The song has been estimated to have brought in over $2.5 million in streaming alone for Bush in just the last two months. And all of this is aside from whatever she was paid by Netflix for its use. Now, old music becoming new again and returning to the top of the charts for a brief time isn't exactly something revolutionary. Queen's hit song, Bohemian Rhapsody, charted higher in 1992, coming in at number two than it did when it was released in 1976, due in part to the boys from the movie Wayne's World headbanging to it throughout the movie. Also, Jay, I know you're a huge Batman Forever fanboy, as we've referenced before. Remember, that's the Batman suit with the nipples. Seal's hit song, Kiss from a Rose, which is probably playing in your local Kroger right this second, didn't even chart when it was released. But it shot all the way to number one in 1995 when the movie featured it as the signature song rolling on through the credits. So, Jay, while these examples highlight the rare instances that old music has historically recharted to, things are changing, highlighted by the powerhouse two-month run for Running Up That Hill. You have double, triple, quadruple the older songs returning not only into our consciousness, but onto the charts. Jason Lipschitz, the executive director of music at Billboard, who recently covered the Running Up That Hill anomaly, told The Ringer, There are new avenues for old songs, particularly those that came out only a few months or years back, to break through. According to Data J from Luminate, formerly known as MRC Data and Nielsen Music, at the beginning of 2022, old music, okay, so that is music that has not been released within the past year and a half, accounted for 70% of the music market in the U.S. in the year 2021. The power of streaming, aided by an uptick in users from older generations, added to the power of a social media platform like TikTok that can take an older song and make it into a viral sensation, has all created a perfect recipe for older music to live not only a second life, but a more successful second life. And it's also no coincidence that older acts have started to sell the publishing rights to their entire life's work cashing in on this new revelation within the music industry. Some examples for you. Bruce Springsteen recently sold his entire catalog for $550 million. Bob Dylan, over $300 million. Paul Simon, $250 million. Stevie Nicks, $100 million. Even Justin Timberlake, who's not that old, $100 million. So Jay, whether running up that hill stays on the charts for two more months or two more years... It's just the latest example of the timeless power of music. Long after Stranger Things is done dominating the streaming wars, the song will still be there, ready for you to hit play for another 4 minutes and 59 seconds of pulse-pounding bliss. Well, Kate Bush deserves this because that song is awesome. You know what's really funny? It's actually listened to it twice driving home from work today. Yeah, <laughs> just, like back to back. Like you just, we were like, you know what? Let's do that again. <laughs> You're like, hey, run it again. I want that journey all over again. <laughs> so, Dave, we live in a time where commercial space travel probably. You know, isn't super attainable for us right now. Uh, I think it probably you can kind of see it over the horizon that like maybe in a generation or so it'll be 
a lot more available. You'll be able to like buy a ticket to go up in space for a little bit and come back down. And maybe by the time we're old, it'll be a realistic option. But let's pretend it's a little bit in the future and commercial space travel is just like purchasing a plane ticket. Is that something you'd be interested in doing or you just, you, you want to keep your feet right down here on earth? How long would it take? Uh, let's say, you know, maybe you go up, you kind of make a trip around the earth, come back, you're back by dinner. So five or six hours, something like that. Um, I thought I was going to say yes, but I might say no. I mean, it would be cool to see the Earth. So for you, space. it's a time thing. It's like eh, five hours, <laughs> a little too much. <laughs> I feel like it's just too much of a time commitment. And then also, like the first time you fly, it's really cool to look out the window. And I, I still do think it's cool when we take off. You take off, you look out the window, you see your hometown. It's really small. And then like you're just ready to be done. <laughs> It's like, you've seen it, I'm done, I'm there, I'm good, take me home. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, yeah, start watching the in-flight movie. Well, Dave, going to space isn't as easy as just getting in a rocket ship and blasting off. Astronauts actually have to train pretty rigorously for months in the lead-up to getting to go to space for an extended amount of time. If you're in a zero-gravity environment, it's actually really hard on the body, especially if you're there for a while. Doug Wheelock, a NASA astronaut who spent 178 days in space over the course of two missions, put it this way. He said, quote, you feel the physiological changes when you get to space, and you are beginning to feel that your body and your brain don't think that you need your legs anymore. Dave, when you don't have the downward force of gravity holding your body down, your muscles actually have to work a lot harder than usual to keep you standing still. So this means that over time, you lose quite a bit of muscle mass and bone density when you're in space. Astronauts actually work out an average of two hours a day while in space to try to combat this. Then in addition to this, in space, you're exposed to much more radiation than you are on Earth, exposing you to all sorts of long-term health risks. Your bones stretch out over time as well, meaning that upon returning to Earth, at least for a time, astronauts are just a little bit taller than when they left. But besides the physical toll, the mental toll can be great as well. Depression and fatigue, loneliness and isolation combined with a thrown off sleep schedule, because remember, there really isn't a day and night cycle in space and a lack of nutrition. I mean, think about the freeze dried space food, for instance. All this really adds up to a pretty large mental strain. So putting all this together, when an astronaut returns from space, there is a need for a readjustment on a lot of different levels. Most astronauts will need an average of a 45-day to a year time frame to mentally readjust to life back on Earth. And astronauts typically require physical therapy to then readjust their bodies to gravity on Earth. Even walking a straight line is reportedly difficult for astronauts upon returning from space for quite some time. NASA also requires a mental evaluation upon returning because the effects of isolating away from family and performing tasks under immense pressure... There can be a lot of effects that that can have on the human brain. In fact, Dave, most astronauts agree that being in space is a transformative experience on their perspectives on really everything. Seeing Earth as a whole from above tends to radically shift perspectives on wars and the environment and human greed and society in general. This is called the overview effect, and it's well-documented. It's the tendency to have this sort of perspective shift to seeing the Earth as fragile and seeing conflicts on it as petty once you've seen the planet from space. Apollo 14 astronaut Edgar Mitchell said it this way, said, quote, You develop an instant global consciousness, a people orientation, an intense dissatisfaction with the state of the world, and a compulsion to do something about it. From out there on the moon, international politics looks so petty 
ready. You want to grab a politician by the scruff of the neck and drag him a quarter of a million miles out and say, look at that. And they've attempts to have actually been made on Earth to recreate the overview effect using VR technology to try to spark the overview effect in people on Earth by the European Space Agency. But all this together, it's important to note here that most astronauts report space travel as being a really positive experience. And as NASA looks to the future, especially when you think about sending humans to Mars on an extended space mission, the effects of space travel on the body and the mind really have to be understood and studied to then advance those types of long-term goals. So uh, U.S. News and World Report says that the last time NASA posted a job advertisement for astronauts, so I guess it was like on Indeed, or <laughs> astronaut. Uh, so this was 2020. They received 12,000 applications, which is one of the highest application totals they'd ever received. So imagine if like you're you're dating somebody and you're going to meet their parents, and they're introducing you. Like, oh well, what does Jay do? Oh, he uh, he's applying to be an astronaut. You're out. You're out of there. You're a joke from day one. So as you read on in this, this article about being an astronaut, there's all these things that you, you have to do to qualify, like the degree you have to get and all this kind of stuff. And down at the bottom, it seriously says this. It says, also, bravery is necessary if you choose this career path. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, you think? You think? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I make one mistake at work. It's, it's whatever. There's like a letter in my file or something like you know, you make a mistake on a space station, you know, everybody's getting sucked out into the, the deep vacuum of space. And that's it. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review Commute on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast network. We're on social. Check us out. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you can always say what up at our website, commutethepodcast.com. Music for Commute is provided by my main man, Jason Sammons. For Jay Sisson, I'm Dave Traub. We'll see you next week. Do you think kids still want to be astronauts? Like, that used to be the thing. <laughs> like, when we were little, it was, what do you want to be when you grow up? And, like, half the class wanted to be an astronaut. You think it's I still think like it's that? probably lost its appeal a little bit. Because, like, being an like, it's cool to get to go to space, but, like, you don't really get to do much up there except just like get out a screwdriver and like tinker around with like the ship and then like exactly. conduct a bunch it's like of you're research. A, you're a mechanic. You're basically a yeah, mechanic. Like I, I think it's uh, it just hit me. It's not as exciting as mechanic. it was built to us, you know, when we were growing up probably. Yeah. It's like you're changing the oil. <laughs>